Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. Welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm Lawrence Eppard, and today on our show, you'll hear a discussion that Allie and I had with poverty scholar Mark Robert Rank at Shippensburg University on April 7th, 2021. This conversation focused on myths about poverty in America, focusing specifically on the work that Mark and I did with our colleague Heather Bullock in our new book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty which was published by Oxford University Press just last month. The following are highlights from our discussion. We hope you enjoy. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist here at Shippensburg University, and I'll be your moderator tonight. I'd like to introduce our guests. Mark Rank is a faculty member in the Department of Sociology, as well as in the School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis. His books include One Nation, Underprivileged, Why American Poverty Affects Us All, and Chasing the American Dream, Understanding the Dynamics That Shape Our Fortunes. Lawrence Eppard is a sociology faculty member right here at Shippensburg University. His books include Rugged Individualism and the Misunderstanding of American Inequality, and the two forthcoming books, Explaining the Meaning of Freedom and Obligations to the Future. Mark and Lawrence, welcome, and thank you for joining us right here at SHIP. Before we dive into the poverty myths themselves, can you tell us a little bit about what prompted both of you to write this new book, Poorly Understood? Lawrence, I think you're the, uh, you're the one with the initial idea, so you should take this. Well, the modern world, as everybody knows, is just so incredibly complex. And I just feel like none of us can really keep up with the pace of change and this just flood of information that bombards us on a daily basis. If you look at the statistics, Americans today are consuming five times as much information as they were just 25 years ago. And uh, in fact, psychologist Adam Grant recently wrote about how much faster our collective knowledge is growing today compared to the past. And an example he gave was that in 1950, it took 50 years for knowledge and medicine to double, but today it takes just four. So, you know, that's incredibly intimidating. It's formidable. It's a, it's a challenge to try to keep up with all this knowledge. And I know that if I'm having difficulty as a researcher who has access to all these expensive journals and I have this social network of folks who are experts, I know it must be difficult for the average American you know, who, who doesn't have access to all those things. Whenever I start a research project, I do the same thing that every social scientist does, which is I do a literature review. I look at all of the literature that's been done before, all the studies that have been conducted before on this particular topic and think about how I might build upon that previous knowledge. Well, with each passing year, that knowledge just continues to grow and to grow. And so uh, I'm really appreciative myself when I find a really good uh, article in a journal that does a, a really good review of all the literature or when I find a really great book, you know, an academic book, which has a great chapter, which condenses all that literature into one place. So if I if I'm really appreciative of that, I know that the general reader is as well. And it got me to thinking about the issue of poverty and how many things we get wrong about poverty and how many myths that persist 
and how useful it would be for Americans to have just one place where they could go where so many of those myths were compiled in one place. And so the first person that I thought of to run this idea by was Mark, because I've, I've worked with him on several projects, you know, articles. We've written a previous book together, and uh, I really wanted him to, to help me think through this, this topic and, um, and, and to help me write the book. And also, we'd worked with Heather Bullock before as well. And so it was just sort of natural for all three of us to say, hey, if we like the idea, let's, let's run with it. Yeah, I remember you, I think you sent me an email or something and said, I've got this great idea for a book and, uh, and sort of threw this out. And I thought immediately, oh, yeah, this is this would be terrific, uh, because there really isn't, there isn't anything out there. So, you know, what we did is, um, we each kind of put together our lists of myths, and they were, they were all pretty consistent. And kind of we went from there. Mark, let me ask you a question. Many people think that poverty is something that happens to other people, but what is the reality? So, Allie, that is a question I have spent um, quite a bit of time on over the last few years. And, you know, that's kind of the myth that we really start the book out with is that, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, poverty is something that happens to some other group. Um, It's never going to happen to me. And it turns out that actually the reach of poverty in the United States is really, really wide. So I've done a bunch of uh, life course research and looking over a, a long period of time at the likelihood of an American experience poverty. And, and here we have this on the, on the screen here. And it turns out that, you know, as people go from age 20 to 75, um, nearly 60% of people will spend a year below the official poverty line, which is very, very conservative. And three quarters of Americans will experience either poverty or near poverty. So this idea that poverty is something that happens to somebody else, it happens to the vast majority of Americans. And if we if we kind of include a couple other things in that, like experiencing unemployment, then um, about 80% of the American population will spend at least one year in economic trouble. So it's it's very, very widespread. I should just mention that this myth that poverty is something that happens to other people can be debunked in a variety of ways. Uh, Mark's research is really just extraordinary. Uh, His work looking at the life course risk of poverty, finding that a strong majority of Americans will experience poverty was really groundbreaking. And it's a really important uh, piece of the puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle comes from this famous work that was done by Mary Jo Bain and David Elwood. They wrote this article, this really famous article, Slipping Into and Out of Poverty, The Dynamics of Spells, uh, which was published in the Journal of Human Resources um, some years ago. And what they did was they asked a pretty basic question. I mean, it was really good, rigorous research, but the question is pretty basic. So when you look at Americans each year who enter into poverty, how long does it take them to escape? If most are stuck there forever, then yes, you can say they're, they're different from the rest of us, Right. Uh, but if they're not, then you say, well, if most of us experience it and most of us fight really hard to get out, are they all that different from us? And I think the answer is is no. And so they did just that. They said, look, you know, let's take a look at Americans who enter into poverty each year. How long does it take them to escape? And the answer is within a few years, most are, are out of poverty. They described the situation in their article in this really great way. Uh, quote, consider the situation in a typical hospital. Most of the persons admitted in any year will require only a short spell of hospitalization. 
but a few of the newly admitted patients are chronically ill and will have extended stays in the hospital. If we ask what proportion of all admissions are people who are chronically ill, the answer is relatively few. On the other hand, if we ask what fraction of the number of the hospital's beds at any one time are occupied by the chronically ill, the answer is much larger. The reason is simple. Although the chronically ill account for only a small fraction of all admissions, because they stay so long, they end up being a sizable part of the hospital population and they consume a sizable proportion of the hospital's resources. The same basic lesson applies to poverty. Only a small fraction of those who enter into poverty in any given year will be chronically poor. But people who will have long spells of poverty represent a sizable portion of the group we label the poor at any one time, end quote. So I think that's a, just a really tremendous example. And there's actually been some recent work which updated their work uh, done by Ann Huff Stevens, also published in the Journal of, of Human Resources. And she did the same analysis. And what she found was after a year, about 53% of people who have entered into poverty will escape. So a slight majority. Within two years, it's 70%. Within three years, it's 78%. So the vast majority of people who enter into poverty at any given time in the U.S. will escape within a few years. Now, we should mention that there is a danger of entering back into poverty. So about 50% of those people who leave poverty within the next five years will dip back below the line. So there are plenty of Americans who have a variety of characteristics, whether it's low educational attainment, whether it's, you know, single parenthood, etc., who put them at greater risk of falling back below that line. So we're not suggesting that sort of the risk is sort of the same for all of us. But this idea that, um, you know, poverty happens to other people. No, it, it happens to most of us. And this idea that, you know, the poor are just this sort of, you know, quote unquote, hopeless underclass that, that are just trapped in poverty just isn't true. Poverty happens to most Americans. And when it happens to most Americans, they fight like hell to get out. And most of them do. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really great point. And, uh, you know, we should be thinking about poverty, like the typical um, kind of experience with poverty is that it's very fluid. People move in and out of poverty. So even when we say poor people, that really is, is again, a misnomer. It's implying that people are poor for their lives, and that is not the case. It, it tends to be, as Lawrence was, was pointing out, it tends to be for most folks short-term, although there is a group, maybe 10 to 15% of people who experience poverty do so for long periods of time. Mark, you have a great saying about the reach of poverty that I, I think people would benefit from hearing. Yeah, the reach is wide, but the, the grip is not as strong as we might think it is. I think that's a really good way of, of thinking about it. We, um, we just had a question, and it was a question that I have as well. So, uh, Colby, thank you very much for asking this. Um, can you talk a little bit, Lawrence, I'll, I'll throw this to you, um, about the relationship between race and poverty and what some of the myths there are? And can you explain this a little bit further? Certainly. Uh, there are endless myths about race in the U.S., and many of them are very, very damaging. And you could write a whole book about these myths. In this particular book, in dealing with poverty myths, we dealt with one particular myth, and that is that poverty is a black problem. And it's a pretty easy myth to debunk. 
most poor people are not black and most black people are not poor. So if you look at U.S. census data, which we do in the book, about 19% of African Americans are poor, nowhere near a majority, of course. And if you look at the overall poor population in the U.S., African Americans represent about 24% of that population. So again, nowhere near a majority. Most African Americans are not poor, and most of the poor are not African Americans. Now, are African Americans disproportionately poor? Yes, that would be true. So if you look at the entire American population, about 11% of Americans are poor. And so any group that experiences poverty at a rate that is higher than the number you would say is disproportionately poor. So at 19%, yes, African Americans are disproportionately poor. And there are a whole host of really important factors which scholars have identified that explain that disproportionate experience of poverty. But again, nowhere near a majority of African Americans are poor and nowhere near a majority of the poor population are African American. So, of course, the question is, why do we care? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that we believe these things that aren't true? Well, it matters because these myths have very real and damaging consequences for African Americans in our society. So, for instance, it's not just this particular myth that poverty is a black problem. You can think of a variety of myths. Think about the myth that black folks are just inherently dangerous, particularly black males are inherently dangerous. If you look at FBI statistics for murders committed last year, less than 0.0001% of black Americans committed a murder last year. So despite the fact that some minuscule fraction of African Americans committed a murder, this myth persists in the American mind that African Americans are dangerous. Despite the fact that poverty is just demonstrably not a black problem, this myth persists in the American mind, and it's very damaging. So I'll give you one example of why it's very damaging. There have been a variety of real-world experiments looking at discrimination in the U.S. to see if racial discrimination is still a problem in the U.S., and these experiments find that, yes, racial discrimination actually is still a very real problem, and a lot of this discrimination, uh, one of the reasons why it persists and why we keep seeing this happening is because of these myths, of these things that we think about different groups of people, and in this case, the myths that we believe about African Americans. So to give you an example of some of these studies, uh, there are these experiments that are done that are called employment audit studies. Some of the famous studies were done by a scholar uh, who recently passed away. Her name is Diva Pager. Uh, she's not the only one that has done those. There's been a variety of scholars who have done these, but she did some of the most famous ones. And what these scholars do is they hire people to pose as job applicants to go apply for real-world jobs. And they act in the same manner, they dress in the same manner, they speak in the same manner, but uh, and, and their, their credentials on their resumes are also very similar. The only thing that they change is in some of the applications, they put that the applicant has a felony conviction, and in some of them they don't. Same credentials, but one has a felony conviction and one doesn't. And what these folks have found and what Diva Pager found in her very famous studies is that even with the same credentials, African-Americans are not only much less likely to get a callback than white applicants, 
but even white applicants who had a felony conviction, same credentials, but a felony conviction on their application, were more likely to get a callback than African-American applicants who didn't have a felony conviction and had the same credentials. So discrimination is still widespread in the U.S., and when Diva Pager was interviewed about this and, and why she thought that uh, these things came out like this and these experiments, she said a lot of it, she thinks, was about implicit bias, was about the ways that we operate on these sort of subconscious ideas that we have about different groups. And these ideas are ideas that we have about, you know, whether they're hardworking, whether they are lazy, whether they are violent, etc. And so there are very real world and extremely damaging consequences for allowing these myths to persist. Let me just give you one more example of one of the damaging consequences that these myths about race have. There's a very good political scientist named Martin Gillens, and he's done some classic work on the factors responsible for American support or lack of support for different government programs. And what he finds is that race plays a really crucial role. And building on this research, I actually recently conducted a study in a similar vein with some students here at CHIP with Troy Nazarenus and Lucas Everidge and Debbie Modisu. And we published that article. The article was Racial Prejudice, Individualism and Government Support Among U.S. College Students. We published that in the New York Sociologist. And what we found was that there were a whole variety of government programs that people would be more supportive of if they were less prejudiced and less supportive of if they were more prejudiced. So to give you an example, should food stamps, should the SNAP program be expanded? High prejudice individuals, only 27% agreed. Low prejudice individuals, 80% agreed. And there were just a whole variety of questions like that. So should the government, is the government responsible for reducing income inequality? High prejudice individuals, only 25% agreed. Low prejudice individuals, 62% agreed. And again, like I said, there were a variety of questions. I'll give you one more. Um, should the U.S. adopt a government single-payer health care system? High prejudice individuals, 29% agree. Low prejudice, 77%. And so what's likely going on here is that Americans associate many government programs with African Americans, and they have some negative stereotypes about African-Americans that they operate on. And so they have negative views of a variety of government programs. Now, uh, that's incredibly damaging. We can have honest debates about these programs and whether they're a good idea or a bad idea. But those debates should be based upon facts. They should not be based upon racism. They should not be based upon prejudice. They should not be based upon myths and stereotypes. If you oppose these programs, doesn't mean that you're a racist, right? It doesn't mean that you're prejudiced, and we're not saying that. What we're saying is that uh, there are a variety of stereotypes and myths that uh, play a role in these debates, at least on some implicit level, on some sort of subconscious level, and they muddy the debate. We should have an honest debate based upon facts. And so, you know, again, these myths about race, the ones we cover in the book about poverty, and just a whole host of other myths that are out there, you could write a whole book about them, they're incredibly damaging. And it's important to set the record straight so that we have a more rational and, and logical and honest debate about what we should do in terms of social policy in this country, and also so that we have less discrimination and less prejudice. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what you're saying is so important. Um, I would say that, you know, what we talk about in the book is that race um, has often been used to um, to divide folks. And it's been used politically over and over again to divide poor whites and poor blacks from seeing their common interest. And so um, there's a quote that we have in this chapter um, that I think is very poignant. It's from Lyndon Johnson in 1960. He was talking to an aide at the time uh, who actually was Bill Moyers. And um, he says, uh, I'll tell you what's at the bottom of it. If you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. And that's exactly what has happened over and over and over again. So we see poverty as a black problem and not as an American problem. It's used to divide folks from seeing their common economic interests. And it's been done over and over and over again, particularly by Southern politicians, but by many other folks as well. You know that um, I have a follow up question to that. Um, And Mark, maybe you can speak to this. You're right that so many politicians have poured gasoline on this fire and exacerbated um, this kind of animosity for their own gain for, you know, decades and decades, centuries. Um, And with that come allegations of welfare fraud and abuse. Um, How how concerned should we be about welfare fraud? Is that is that a really big problem? No, it's not. I mean, it's certainly if you listen to the media or to some politicians, you think it's rampant. Um, But no, there's not, you know, we have a a chapter where we deal with welfare fraud, particularly in the SNAP program or the food stamp program. And, uh, you know, what we show is that the amount of of actual fraud is very, very small. Um, You know, it's, 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 really small. Now, there, should, there shouldn't be fraud at all. But I mean, in any program, there's fraud. For example, with, uh, with uh, people filing their tax returns, it's estimated, I think it's something like 20 to 25% of people don't report all of their income. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of that going on. Um, but yeah, in terms of, of welfare fraud, no. It, it, and, and again, the, that has been used by politicians to sort of make the argument that, well, we really need a small safety net. We need a small government um, in terms of these programs. You know, Ronald Reagan had his famous story about the welfare queen, and this was somebody getting all these benefits. And, um, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's it's definitely, it's one of the strong myths that's out there. Uh, but it turns out if you look at the empirical evidence, the amount of fraud is very small. Let's talk a little bit about the role of government here. And as a political scientist, I have to admit I'm a little bit biased towards uh, that approach. Lawrence, the welfare and government assistance, they've been around for a very, very long time. And poverty still exists. And there are politicians who point to that to say, see, the government can't solve this problem. So let's get the government out of the solution. Um, Why should we believe the government can do something about poverty? And, you know, should we have more faith in what is actually being done? You know, Ali, I actually have an interesting story about this. I had a student come to me recently and I was talking in class about this particular issue. You know, do government programs reduce poverty? 
And we were looking at cross-national data, which says that, um, yes, government programs do reduce poverty. So if you look across the OECD, you look across wealthy countries, what you see is the countries that spend more money, they have more generous social welfare programs, have much lower poverty, have much less inequality, income inequality, compared to the countries like the U.S. that spend less. So the evidence is pretty clear. If you spend more, if you have good government programs, if you make that choice, as David Brady says, uh, you will have less in income inequality, you'll have less poverty. So the student came to me and I was talking about these data in class and she says, well, I just don't really understand. I, you know, I like your class and I, I believe you when you when you show us these data. But, you know, I come from a family that really, uh, you know, venerates Ronald Reagan and, uh, you, you know, they're telling me something different. They're saying government is bad. Government doesn't work. And so she was, you know, kind of making a plea to me like, well, you know, help me understand who I should believe. And I said, well, you know, you can believe both of us. And let's just, you know, and this was a teachable moment. Let's think about why each of us would have this particular perspective, right? So if you think about Reagan and you think about why he would make that claim that government doesn't work, he was making that claim based upon the best social science that existed at the time. So he was making that claim based upon a whole host of scholars. One of them was Charles Murray in his book, Losing Ground. And it was just a different time. They had access to different data. So for instance, that was the early 1980s. They didn't have access to what we have access to now, the Luxembourg Income Study, which provides us data on poverty across all of these countries. So now we know better than we knew then about how much poverty exists before the government gets involved. We call that pre-tax and transfer. And how much poverty exists after the government gets involved. We call that post-tax and transfer. And what we find is some countries have remarkably lower poverty after the government becomes involved with a whole variety of programs. And so these countries that spend more, that, they, that have good programs, do a tremendous job of reducing poverty. So it works. And now we have the data to show that, yes, indeed, it does work. And in the U.S., it's not as if we don't have good government programs. We have a variety of government programs that work very well. Take Social Security. Social Security works great. Social Security, along with Medicare, it brings the poverty rate down for the elderly in the U.S. from close to 40% to below 10%. It's a really successful program. And I should mention that it's a program that's also not in crisis. People talk about, oh, Social Security is going to go broke. There's no reason for that. Uh, Kathleen Romig, uh, she's at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. One of the things she says is, look, if you remove the cap on taxable earnings for Social Security, it's completely solvent. Social Security is fine and it works. And we have a variety of programs like that. Social Security is targeted towards a particular group, a particular population to serve their needs. You know, they're detached from the labor force. They have high medical costs. And so it targets resources to them. We could do the same thing. I mean, you think about countries that do a really great job of lowering their child poverty rate. How do they do that? One of the ways they do it, family allowances. They get money into the pockets of families that have children. We're a little less supportive of that here in the U.S. because in the U.S. we're really gun shy about giving resources to families if we think the parents are sinning in some way, quote unquote sinning in some way, right? Like the sins of the parents 
prevent us from giving resources to that family that might impact the children in a positive manner. So if the parents aren't working or if we think they're on drugs or whatever the case may be, in many European countries, they just give resources to families, regardless of what they may think of the parents, because they know it's going to have a positive impact on the children. We could do that. Social security is targeted towards a particular population. We could target families. And what does the evidence suggest? It works. It brings child poverty down to really low levels. In the U.S., we don't have those types of programs. And so we suffer with really high child poverty. Yeah, I was just I was looking for a quote in the book from uh, which I think was really interesting from John Kenneth Galbraith. And, and basically what he said in the 1980s with Reagan and sort of this this idea that, you know, government is the problem is what they did is they 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 picked a solution that they wanted, which is small government programs. And from that. Uh, went back and then devised what the cause was. And so the cause from Charles Murray and Ronald Reagan and all them was that the welfare state, you know, has these bad disincentives and makes poverty worse. Uh, and therefore, we need small government. And it was kind of like putting the, the cart before the horse. It, and it, as you as you have pointed out, we now have a lot of data to show that um, that uh, social safety nets have a, a a huge effect on reducing the extent of poverty, um, and your example of the elderly is a, is a great one. It's you know it, it shows that government programs can really have a pretty significant effect. And so today, if there was no social security, the poverty rate for the elderly would go from about ten percent to close to forty percent. And that's showing you how effective that that program is in reducing poverty. And, you know, I should just mention something before we move on. One of the questions that people might ask themselves when they think about this discussion is, well, why is Social Security so popular and why does it have such broad based support? And why aren't things like family allowances more popular? I mean, they are targeting kids after all. Right. And one of the reasons actually relates back to our discussion of race and racism earlier. When you think about Social Security, Social Security targets a population who we think of as deserving. And this actually comes up again and again and again in the literature. I mentioned Martin Gillens earlier. He's done some of the classic work on this. Americans are actually pretty altruistic. Americans care a lot about other people and want to help other people. But one of the things that differentiates Americans from people in many other wealthy countries and particularly from Europeans is that our, our altruism really kind of stops when we think of as a, gr a group as being undeserving, right? So I mentioned child poverty. Why do we suffer with high child poverty rates? Because we have a problem in a way that many European countries don't with just giving things to people who we see as undeserving. So we see the, the elderly as deserving, but we may not necessarily want to give resources to families if we think the parents are sinning, right? Using drugs, not working, etc. And why we believe some of those families are doing those things is, is really tied into our ideas about race and whether particular programs are going to disproportionately benefit African-Americans. Um, that's just a sad reality of a lot of these programs and what the research shows about why we support some of these programs. And this question of deservedness is really is really key in terms of how we in the United States view poverty. So we view poverty 
as to the, a large extent an individual failing, that people aren't working hard enough, they've made bad decisions, so on and so forth. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, they're responsible for their own lot in life. Um, and what we show is that really for most of most folks in poverty, it's it's the result of a structural failing. It's a result of failings at the economic level and at the uh, policy level. And in fact, we have a little section where we say, OK, um, uh, who's in poverty? Well, it turns out that, you know, 30 percent of the folks in poverty are children. Um, uh, another 10 to 15 percent are the elderly. Another 10 to 15 percent are folks with a disability. So right there, you've got 55 percent of folks in poverty that are either children, elderly or disabled. So for those 18 to 64 that don't have a disability, many of them are working, but they're working at jobs that don't pay a decent wage. Um, and, and, and there are other reasons there. But so, so this question of, of folks deserving poverty is really, really critical for us to take on and to show that actually for many people in poverty, it's really through no fault of their own. It's really a structural failing. And that's a paradigm shift that we really need to have in this country. We need to go from viewing social problems like this as individual failing to something failing at the structural level and begin to address it on a structural, um, on a structural basis. At the end of each chapter in our book, we actually have experts weigh in, these little snippets from experts just weighing in on the topics in that particular chapter. And at the end of one chapter, we have Elise Gould, who works at the Economic Policy Institute. And what she shows in her work is if you look at that minority of folks who are poor, that 45% who are not elderly, they're not children, they don't have a disability, they're not students, etc. What you find is uh, among that group, most actually are working. Yeah. And an important point here is that they may not be working now, but they've worked in the past and will work in the future. So take the pandemic. There's a bunch of people that are out of work. Now, they haven't been out of work for, for long periods of time in the past, but now they are. And so it's it's also important that, to go back to that dynamic question that we looked at earlier, which is to say, you know, for most people in poverty, they're there for a period of time and then they get out of poverty. And it's the same thing with working and unemployment. Right now, with the discussion about raising the minimum wage, it strikes me that you could be working and still be under the poverty line, correct? Because the minimum wage is so low. Is that? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it, today, it's estimated that 40% of all jobs in the United States are low-paying jobs. And by low-paying, they're less than $16 an hour. I mean, think about that. Think about this. 40% of all jobs are low-paying in the United States. That is a huge number. And what has happened over time over the last 40 or 50 years, is that the U.S. economy has been producing more and more low-wage jobs, jobs without benefits, part-time jobs. And these are the kinds of things that you can be working full-time and still fall into poverty or near poverty. And that's why this is a structural issue. This is a problem with the economy that we need to address. It's not because Americans aren't working hard. In fact, Americans are working more hours than than basically folks in all the other OECD countries. So if you just go by that, we should have really low poverty. But the problem is they're working at jobs that don't pay very much. Again, a structural issue that we need to focus on. Um, 
we had a good question um, from Ken about whether how it's possible to shift the paradigm that both of you are talking about. Well, you know, in the social sciences, because we're focusing on problems, oftentimes we can give the impression that things are really pessimistic and things are doom and gloom. But in this case, I see a lot of rays of hope. I think the paradigm is shifting. So if you look at Google searches about inequality and about racism and racial inequality, if you look at um, you know research articles on income inequality and racial inequality, I mean, there's been a huge explosion in those things over the past decade. If you had asked me in the 1990s, is a racial awakening to the extent that we're having right now, is it possible in the U.S.? I would have been really pessimistic about that, right? So I think the paradigm is shifting, and I think it's been caused by social movements. I think it's been caused by, you know, social media is not all bad. I think social media has had a really positive impact in this regard. I think it's also being caused by young people. I often talk in my classes that a really important part of data literacy, there's many important aspects of it, but when it comes to things like surveys is, you know, when you see a survey reported by the media, good media outlets like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, when they, when they talk about a particular survey, they're going to tell you about that survey, you know, where it came from, who did it. And they're often going to provide you with a hyperlink. I always tell my students, click on the hyperlink. There's always way more questions in the survey then they had space to report on in that particular column, in that particular article. Go look at it and you'll find a whole host of questions. And, you know, it's really interesting. And especially when you start looking at how questions break down by age group, right? So if you go look at Gallup polls, go look at the Pew Research Center, what you find is even on questions where things don't look so good, you know, when you look at how the U.S. as an as a, as a entire population views a particular question, Oftentimes, young people are much more willing to to see these social problems as systemic, as structural, and to want to do something about it. So when you look at just the increased awareness, when you look at the racial reckoning we're having right now, when you look at these polls and how young people are, are responding, you look at social movements, I think the paradigm is shifting. This is a really exciting time. I think we should be optimistic. You know, one of our um, kind of our commentators at the end of a chapter um, made this point. But, um, you know, if we think about what's happened in the last 10 years, there's there's been so much more discussion about inequality um, and economic vulnerability, um, you know, beginning with the Occupy movement in 2011, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Fight for 15 movement. There's a bunch of things that, you know, that people are becoming more and more aware. And again, it's an issue of people recognizing that this is not just an issue that affects some, some group, uh, you know, over there. This is an issue that affects many, many Americans. And I think that's where you can start to begin to change the paradigm. You know, I, I, I often use the example of um, the environmental movement as an example of this, that we used to think, you know, before the 1960s and 1970s that, you know, the environment, um, you know, somebody else's problem. It, you know, it's, it's downstream, downwind, you know, why should I care about it? Well, now we realize now no, we're all in this together and climate change is going to affect all of us. And therefore, we need to shift our thinking and our action. And that's the same thing that we need to do with poverty and inequality. 
While we're on the topic of poverty being something that impacts all of us, it's not just something that impacts other people. I want to make a plug for Mark because I know he won't make the plug himself. If you go to confrontingpoverty.org, he has this thing called a poverty risk calculator. This is Mark's website. And it's based upon this idea, you know, there across the, the internet, there are a variety of tools where you can estimate your particular health risks, right? So your risk of having a heart attack, for instance. Well, what Mark has done on his website, confrontingpoverty.org, what he allows you to do is over the course of the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 15 years, if you input your particular characteristics, you can estimate your own risk of poverty. And what you find is that for many of us, the risk is pretty high. It is something that impacts all of us. So again, it's awesome. I know Mark is just way too modest to plug this himself, so I'll do it for him. So go to confrontingpoverty.org and go to that poverty risk calculator. It is really tremendous. I know that a lot of my colleagues are using this in college classrooms and high school classrooms all over the country. It's just tremendous. Mark, in, in the book, you write that we could pay to eliminate poverty now or we could pay for its consequences later. Can you expand yeah. on that? I thought that was a wonderful yeah. quote. Yeah. So it's um, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. So it's not as if we're not going to pay for poverty. It's how we want to pay for it. And the argument um, that we make is that what we're doing is paying for the consequences of poverty, the back end of poverty, which is always so much more expensive than preventing poverty in the first place. So up here, we have this, um, this table from this analysis that I did with a graduate student here. And what we tried to do was estimate what is the cost of childhood poverty in the United States? So we looked at, as you can see, um, that poverty reduces uh, children's earnings when they become adults. It increases healthcare costs. It increases criminal justice costs. And if we factor all those things in, we wind up spending conservatively uh, a little over $1 trillion a year on the fallout of poverty. Um, so the question is not, are we going to pay for poverty? It's how are we going to pay for it? And when you pay for a problem on the back end, it's always a lot more expensive than paying on the front end. So we also, in this analysis, showed that for every dollar we spend on reducing poverty, we would save between 7 and $12 down the road in averting these costs. So the argument here is not only is reducing childhood poverty and poverty in general the morally right thing to do in a country with the resources that the United States has, but it's also economically the smart thing to do. It makes us a more productive society. When we write off a segment of the population, we're reducing our human capital. We're reducing our productivity. And this is a clear, um, a clear example of that. So, you know, what, what I say is by not dealing with poverty, we're, we're being penny wise and pound foolish. We may be saving some dollars here, but we're paying for a lot down the road. You know, I want to, um, Mark, you, you mentioned something a little earlier on, and I want to follow up on that because, um, America strikes us as being a very wealthy country. And then we look at poverty and we think maybe we're not as wealthy as we think we are. 
Um, what what do you think about that? Are are we a wealthy country? How how do we compare to other nations? Well, if we if we ask um, you know if we ask how do we measure that, and we go by GDP, then yes, we are the wealthiest country uh, you know in the world. But if we ask the question of you know how are folks in the bottom, let's say in the bottom you know third of society doing? Then, as Lawrence had pointed out earlier, when we look at at that set of the population, they're doing actually much worse than um, than those folks in other countries. So um, it kind of depends on on what you mean and how you want to measure wealth. You know, it, it also turns out that you know, as we were talking about earlier, over the last forty or fifty years, almost all of the economic gains have gone to the top fifth of the population, and particularly the top ten, five, and one percent. That's where all the gains have gone. So if you look at at wages for uh, men working full time. Today, they're slightly lower than they were in 1973, once you control for inflation. So, um, uh, so I would say, you know, we're gener- we generate wealth through our, um, through our overall economy, but much of that wealth is going to the top. Okay. So, Lawrence, actually, why don't you pick it up from here? Uh, do you think, in your opinion, that America is still the land of opportunity after doing all of this research and knowing everything that you do? Well, Allie, my answer to this question is the same answer that social scientists give to every question, which is, it depends. <laughs> uh, so if you look at just the average American, what's the standard of living for the average American? We do really well compared to other countries. If you look at uh, sort of standard measures of opportunity in the U.S., for instance, one of the standard measures that economists use is social mobility. How likely are you to move up or move down to break away from the background of your parents to sort of chart your own course? If you look at Americans in the middle of the income distribution, middle class kids, there's lots of movement. They move up, they move down. You know, there's there's tons of, of, of mobility. So in that sense, yeah, we're still the land of opportunity. This is still a country that people come from all over the world looking for economic opportunities, looking for opportunities in, in higher education. So in that regard, yes. But we are also a very unequal country. And so for different groups, the picture looks very different. And there's a phenomenon that economists refer to called the stickiness of social mobility. And what they are referring to here is that at the top of the income distribution, kids who are born rich, and at the bottom of the income distribution, kids who are born poor, things look very different than they do in the middle. So in the U.S., compared to other rich countries, you are much more likely to stay rich if you are born rich than in other wealthy countries, and if you're born poor, to stay poor than in other wealthy countries. So, and we we cover this in the book, if you think about uh, kids who are born in the bottom 20%, what percentage remain in the bottom 20% in adulthood? In the US, it's 42%. In Denmark, it's 25%. In Sweden, it's 26%. So, in those countries, kids are much more likely to escape that bottom 20%. What percentage of those kids born at the bottom rise to the top? Well, in the US, it's only 8%. Where in Denmark, it's 14%. In countries like Norway, it's 12%. The UK, it's 12%. So in the middle, things are pretty good. In the middle class, kids who are born there, they move up, they move down. 
you know, there's, there's a, a ton of fluidity, but there's a stickiness in the U S that you just don't see elsewhere where kids who are born rich are much more likely to stay rich. Kids who are born poor are much more likely to stay poor. And what's interesting is that if you look at the U.S., the, the issue of race is really implicated here and racism and racial inequality because a big reason for why we are different in terms of social mobility compared to other countries is because of our racial inequality. So if you look at social mobility rates for white Americans and for black Americans, for white Americans, social mobility rates are really good. But for black Americans, they're not. So even if you look at kids who are born in the middle class, for white Americans, if you're born there, the most likely outcome is you'll either stay there or you will rise, if you're, <clears throat> or you will rise up. For black Americans, the most likely outcome is that you're going to fall in adulthood, right? So if it wasn't for the issue of race and racism and racial inequality, our mobility numbers would be a lot better. And one thing I should just add, when you look at these numbers, when you look at the stickiness of social mobility, uh, even the kids who escape from the bottom, they typically only move a little bit up, you know, maybe maybe one or two rungs up. They don't rise all the way to the top. And for the kids that fall out of, out of wealth, they fall just slightly below the wealth. They don't fall all the way to the bottom. Most kids don't, right? So even for kids who are moving out of poverty or kids who are falling out of wealth, they aren't moving up or, or falling down very far. So to get back to your original question, is the U.S. the land of opportunity? Uh, for a lot of people, yes. For a lot of people who come here from other countries, yes. But we are highly unequal. And so for some people, for particularly at the top and, and at the bottom, uh, the picture looks very different. And so in the U.S., the relationship between where you start out and where you end up, particularly for rich folks and for poor folks, is much stronger than it is in other wealthy countries. And we don't agree on a lot in this country, but one place where there is bipartisan support in this country is for the idea that in the U S this is the land of opportunity. The American dream should be available to all of us where you start out should not determine where you end up. So I think this is one area we all agree we can do better. And I think, uh, I mean, Lawrence, you're, you're raising really, really important points. Um, and, and just to sort of um, add on to that, the idea of, as you mentioned, equality of opportunity is so important to sort of the, the basic core American principles. As you said, uh, Americans have never been in favor of equality of outcome, but they've been strongly in favor of equality of opportunity. That is, you should, you know, folks should be able to have roughly a similar chance of doing well and succeeding in their life. And what we see in the United States is that from this data and from other data, that um, that is is no longer uh, the case, if it ever was. Um, and in fact, in another um, table that we show from the economist Raj Chetty, which is uh, very disturbing, it actually turns out that it's becoming harder and harder for each generation to do economically better than the previous generation. So for folks that were born in the 1940s, over 90% of them wound up doing economically better than their parents. 
But for folks born in the 1980s, only about half do better than their parents did. So this is another aspect of opportunity and sort of uh, this idea of, of folks getting ahead. It's becoming harder and harder for individuals to do that. You know, Mark, it's interesting that you mentioned Raz Chetty. I would encourage all of our listeners to go to the Opportunity Atlas website. And this is based upon the work of Raz Chetty and his colleagues. What they've done is they've taken tens of millions of anonymous tax records of Americans. And what they've been able to do is they've been able to look at Americans in their mid-30s and look at their income and look at whether they've been upwardly mobile and look at whether they're incarcerated and they're married and they have children and all these characteristics. And then they can look at the areas where they grew up and see what the relationship is between where they grew up and where they ended up as adults. And what you find is not only is mobility different compared to other countries like the U S compared to other countries, but mobility is different in the U S across communities from neighborhood to neighborhood. So I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. So in certain areas of the area where I grew up, so in like Ashburn, Virginia, in certain areas, 41% of low-income men will end up rising to the top 20% in adulthood. That's a huge number. If you just start driving east towards Washington, D.C., the number varies considerably. By the time you get to Reston, certain areas of Reston, Virginia, the number is less than 3%. Once you get into the District of Columbia and you get into, you know, the city in areas of Washington, D.C., in certain areas, certain neighborhoods, the number falls below 1%. So it's not just that mobility in the U.S. is worse than other countries, but even in the U.S., because we're so unequal, mobility is different from, you know, street to street, neighborhood to neighborhood, county to county, state to state. So Again, Ross Chetty's work is great. This is real world data. This is tens of millions of Americans anonymous tax records, looking at them in adulthood and seeing where they ended up compared to where they started out. So Opportunity Atlas is the place you can go and you can look at your own neighborhood. You can look at any neighborhood in the U.S. and see how it compares. Nick wanted to know when looking at the issue of poverty, should we look back to those programs started by LBG's Great Society, or is it time for a complete shift in American policy when dealing with poverty? What what are the what would you recommend as you are experts? Okay, I'll take that on. Uh, I think uh, you know I think we're in an interesting period and. What I would point to as kind of, it's a new idea, but it's a very old idea. It actually goes back as far back as Thomas Paine. But there's discussion now about, you know, if poverty is a lack of income, then maybe the best way to deal with this is a straight sort of cash um, transfer kind of thing. And that's the idea behind a universal basic income. Now, I think that that's probably a tough sell in the United States. But what's interesting is that both President Biden and Senator Romney have proposed a child allowance system. And, and what that is, is if you have a child, um, we're going we're gonna to transfer a bit of money every month, three, $400 to help you support that child. That would dramatically reduce poverty. And in fact, 
that policy has been in European countries for decades. So I think that it, it's an old idea, but it's actually, in a way, it's a new idea for the United States. So I think that that's very interesting. I think we also need to, you know, and this is in the wind too, um, to raise the minimum wage to a livable wage um, because of the all the things that we've been talking about in terms of low wage jobs. So, you know, I think, and I think we're in a period of time where. Um, where we're actually starting to see some movement on some of these things. And, and again, starting to recognize that poverty is structural in nature rather than an individual failing and to deal with it on a structural level. I like that. I like ending on a, on a moment of hope. The book is Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. It is out now from Oxford University Press. Mark Rank, Lawrence Eppert, thank you both for joining us tonight. This has been informative and a true delight. Thank you both. And thanks to everybody for coming tonight. We hope you enjoyed this and um, have a very good and safe evening and pick up this book because they're, they're going like hotcakes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Utterly Moderate. We are deeply appreciative of all the support we are getting from listeners, not only in the U.S., but in countries around the world. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform. Or you can listen to us on utterlymoderate.com, where you will find every episode as well as each episode's companion resources. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully.